Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to part three of our May Mental Health Book Club. Uh, depending on how this uh, discussion goes, it might there may be a part four, but we are going to be discussing pages 177 through the end of Prince Shakur's memoir called When They Tell You to Be Good. So as always, let's jump in with our reactions, our kind of updates on how we're feeling about this book. One thing that I keep forgetting how young he is compared to me, um, you know, he'll, he'll throw in like Google and Lyft and I'm like, oh yeah, just <laughs> the author's young. So that's kind of one thing that's standing out most right now. Um, I think it's still really interesting that his style never switches. Like he goes to a story, then he goes back and then he goes back to Karen um, so it gets a little confusing as like where you are in the story. I mean, I think he does a good job like trying to get all his feelings out. Um, and it was very telling that he finally went ahead and was like, yeah, my mom has basically my mom has two gay boys. So I think that was pretty big. I mean, I wonder how she handled that part of it. I would love to have seen more on that. I would also say that this author is very unique in that he'll start telling a story and you're like, okay, good. This is like, for example, the situation with the father when, when it, uh, and there's a huge spoiler coming at the end of this episode, or depending on if I cut it into two, I'm just letting the listeners know if you haven't, if you haven't read, you probably should stop this episode and go read. But up until this point, this section of the book club, we know that his father, he's grown up knowing that his father died. And there's a part in the book where he's basically saying, I found out what happened. And this is the story. And then he starts telling the story and he gets overwhelmed. And then he's like, I need to think about happier times and then tells this long story. And I'm not gonna hold you i was angry as that was happening because i'm like i want to know what happens i want to know what happens i know this is a childhood anecdote but i know i want to know what happens but it's his style right and i wonder or I, I wouldn't say i wonder but i think as someone who you know he's explaining how certain things are emotionally overwhelming he's like He's working out his own emotions and kind of therapy through writing this book. We do that in real life, though. Sometimes when something gets really heavy, we're like, oh, let's take a break from this and think about something happy, right? So I think it's very human, the style. Although, as a just as a reader, sometimes you want just like, give me, give me the information, you know? Um, so, Nita, I agree. Sometimes it's like hard to follow, but at the same time, it, it's very genius, too, if you think about it, because it like keeps you gripped to where you're not going to put the book down. It's like, oh, I guess I just got to finish the entire book. And that's literally what I did. But I just wanted to give my two cents on that. Yeah, I was um, just wrapping up kind of like the middle section of the book where he was talking about um, the time that he was in like Yellowstone and then um, 
in the Philippines. And I just kept remember remembering or not remember, but thinking like, oh my gosh, there's like a lot of drinking going on. Like he seemed to like get like drunk a lot and like black out a lot. And I was wondering if that was maybe like a trauma response and maybe like a coping mechanism. Um, but then also like Becky was saying, like he is really young. So I'm like, has it been that long since I was that age? Was I like doing those things, even though I don't think that I was, but um, that was just something that was just kind of going through my mind as I was reading these sections. He, he just goes to France basically on the word of his friend, you know, here's my friend go, you know, you'll get, you'll get a place to stay with him. And he just shows up and he's kind of regretting his decision at first, but then he does sort of fall into more of a routine, but yes, there are a lot of drinking, which I think is part of the age, but also part of him potentially numbing his feelings, trying to work through his, um, you know, just his feelings and, you know, I guess, working out how he fits in with his own family and culture. And it's almost like he's fine trying to look for his own family or a culture where he fits in best through perhaps his travels. And I would, I wanted to piggyback off of what Whitney said about the drinking, having read this entire book, I, I want to say Prince is maybe less than two years younger than me, but um, even me, I was like, Oh, there's a lot of, drinking but i think if i of course my uh life is very different than his and that he travels a lot he kind of backpacks and he's an activist and we were talking about that in the last episode where it's like we all kind of admire that about him because he's very brave to just like pack up and go with like 50 bucks and an address of somebody and you know just kind of like see where life takes them but you know there was a lot of drinking a lot of you know of course like shoplifting to get the alcohol and the 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 things that he needed and stuff like that and i guess i hadn't even thought about it until whitney you brought it up but but that's a constant throughout the story and to answer what you said about maybe it's a trauma response as i was thinking about especially this last section of the book when he was doing the what was it some sort of like protesting a pipeline and kind of just constantly when he's protesting seeing like capitalism in this country doesn't give a fuck about you know black people and marginalized people and stuff like that and he's going through these real raw emotions and also being you know maced at like point blank right you know and watching people getting like sucked under the police line during a protest and you know just doing the really hard work of being an activist it kind of makes sense like when you're because there there are moments where he's just having like those like sessions with friends and just talking and it's like you know he gets to those moments of feeling very hopeless and Sometimes when you get to a point of being really hopeless and you're overwhelmed and you're traumatized and the fight, flight, or freeze is fight, flight, or freezing, you know, drown it out with a, a depressant or drown it out with some mind-altering substance. You know, I'm not here to judge them. So, um, yes, that I, I do believe that a lot of that had to do with the trauma response. And if you see from the beginning of the story to, you know, throughout his life, I mean, everywhere he turns, it's some some bullshit. So, yeah. So I did find a connection to the last book that we read uh, on page 180. 
I wrote in the margin that the situation was kind of similar to Jamel Hill's um, interactions with her mother over kind of what the expectation is for a, a Black person and working and stuff like that. So I'm going to read that section. Quote, I stood on my apartment's first floor balcony with the beer in hand as I explained to my mother the long hours, the lack of say in my work environment, and my general unhappiness. There was a long pause. Then she sighed before saying, this is just what our people do. We work, and it's like I always say, you, and then Prince cuts her off to finish the, the statement, and he says, you have to kiss ass before you can kick it. I finished for her. The union job was my first experience with salary. For my mother, a salary was the ideal landing pad for me, a Black college graduate with an English degree. She didn't understand how I turned my past year of organizing student demonstrations into a job that could cover my rent and bills and give me enough pocket change to go to the bars. She seemed proud in a way that felt misplaced to me until that conversation on the phone when her anecdote jolted me back backward to my bloody lip behind the dumpster at Our Lady of Peace, to the trash bags of Dennis's things crammed into the garage, and to the fabled apartment we weren't meant to tell anyone about. Side note, this is talking about a lot of the instances and stories that we talked about in part two. I realized it wasn't the battle at hand that I was contending with, but rather the world that had created the struggle for Black people young and old in the first place. I get what you're saying, but I think you deserve more when you came to the U.S. So did grandma, so did I. What does better and paying the bills look like, she asked. She had stumped me there. I thought of the black driver throwing his cigarette out of the window and what Aunt Vic said to my mother about my father's death as they stared at my infant body in the hospital. Black people couldn't live without sacrifice. Sacrifice is how we are taught to know we are strong. So it becomes a matter of what we lose with the sacrifices that we do choose, end quote. And so I just, it reminded me of those conversations that in our last book club where Jamel Hill's mom was like talking about like, you know, don't let anybody run you off your job. Like, it's not even about being satisfied at your job. You just keep that good salary and that kind of stuff. And what he was talking about at the beginning of this quote was like, being an organizer, I mean, Prince went in and out of jobs like nothing <laughs> in this book. So it's very characteristic of, I can say, my generation, because I'm in the same generation as Prince. We don't, the, the loyalty to a job is not like it was generations prior. Like it used to be people would get a good job after they got out of school and they'd stay there for like 50 years and retire with a gold watch sort of situation. The The loyalty isn't there. If the money ain't right, if you ain't be, being treated, treated right or you're not advancing how you want to, you know, you move on. What Whitney said in the chat, uh, there's no reasons to be loyal to these jobs. Uh, I know for me, the second I was feeling some kind of way or someone pushed me a little bit too far, I was on the computer at the job that I had applying to other jobs, okay, using their money to fund me getting another job, okay? And then I would take office supplies on my way out to print the resumes and whatnot. But that's neither here nor there. So I just wanted to share that because I thought it was a cool connection to the last book that we read. But anybody have thoughts on that? It seems to be just a recurrent theme that, um, at least in this book specifically, that 
when when you're I guess when you're black specifically for the Jamaican culture you have to suffer you have to learn how to suffer you have to I guess pay your dues and it's almost like if she were to make it in a way that would make her comfortable living would she even you know um like it you know would she think it's deserved it's like she's continually sacrificing her happiness for what she's you know it's um it's interesting she she's a very complex interesting person <laughs> his mom is you'd think that she'd want the best for him whatever that 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 he's paying his bills but you know that he's happy most of all but yeah it's interesting that um he's able to do that so easily like he doesn't fit much thought into it but it's also because he doesn't have any real responsibilities but itself he doesn't have kids he's not responsible for a spouse or any of that thing. so he can kind of move as he sees fit but then you also look at the amount of times he had to uh, revert to stealing to even have food when he went on some of these travels and then you start thinking was the risk worth taking it because he got arrested a couple of times it could have gone much worse for him especially getting arrested in another country if that had happened so i'm like was it worth the risk to put yourself in that situation to have to steal versus working at a job for a little bit you don't like save a little money and then go i mean like you said throughout this this book there were instances where he would get caught shoplifting or something like that or just doing something that young people with no responsibilities do like he got in trouble for being underage drinking i don't know if we covered that in the last episode or the one before that but basically he was like well i'm i could become a statistic now just because of this one thing but it's interesting to the the lifestyle because it's very much like a wanderlust kind of fly at the seat of your pants kind of existence that he has. But then he's also very tapped into the existence of being black, uh, also the existence of being queer and the the nuances and dangers, uh, depending on the spaces that you're in. And he's also an activist. So he's like going to the front lines of where people are trying to oppose you, you know, and so it's almost like his lifestyle almost sets him up to play Russian roulette with that, which is necessary. I, I think it's necessary for him to be able to be able to do that. But at the same time, his fears that he talks about throughout this book too, because we get into his internal emotions and stuff like that. They're, they're kind of, it's almost like, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? Like you're afraid of this, but you're living in a way that, you know, and it's not even a respectability politics thing. It's just, I think from, from us being like this deep into historian stuff, you can kind of feel that tension between like, okay, well, you know what it's like to be black in America, but you're also kind of, you're doing things that draw attention to yourself. Like in this particular part, I think there was something like he wears this jean jacket and then they tell one of the other people at the protest are like, don't wear that again. And he's almost like, well, who are you to tell me what I can do and stuff like that? And then they tell him, it's like, it's a, it's memorable, it's identifiable. So then it can then, it, it can unravel what you're trying to do if you're recognizable. So it's like, he even has blind spots because I think in that particular instance, he was doing some activism for indigenous people. So like, he's the minority in that situation, but 
I really like that section because he got some teachable moments and he got to learn that just because you're on the margin doesn't mean it's the same experience. And he, I think he learned a lot through it. And so by reading his story, we learned a lot through that, but I think I went on a tangent, but I th- it'll make sense when we listen back to the episode, I'm sure. I have a quote to kind of add to this, you know, what we've been talking about. Um, so clearly he is aware of like capitalism, its pitfalls and stuff like that. And there was just this quote on 187 that resonated with me. Uh, and I put in the margin, capitalism ain't it. Um, and I wouldn't call myself a socialist or anything like that, but what he was saying here resonated with me. So I'm just going to share it. Quote, all of this taught me that I wanted more than what America could give me. I wanted a society that didn't necessitate surpluses of goods in exchange for most of the planet being relegated to poverty. I believe that revolution, socialism, then communism could lead to that, end quote. And I'm not saying that it resonated in that I wholeheartedly endorse that. However, with the stories that he was saying, and he was talking about how like capitalism is built on like consumption, right? And it only works if we keep consuming, you know? And he was more so giving the sentiment of this shit's exhausting, like constantly needing to keep up with demand, constantly needing to upgrade everything, constantly needing to be stressed about if your paycheck is going to make it to the next bill cycle, you know, that resonated. Right. And I mean, I think as our, you know, depending on who you talk to, we've either been in a recession for several months or some say we're approaching one, but either way, everyone doesn't matter how much money you make is feeling the pinch of inflation and all this other stuff. And I don't know that, that uh, sentiment of like being a little exhausted and seeing that the system that we live in doesn't really work for everybody. It kind of hit. Any thoughts on that? I agree with you. Um, I've definitely been feeling the pinch lately. And I'm one of those people that, you know, makes pretty good money, but it's just been really, really exhausting lately with the inflation and are we in a recession? Are we approaching a recession? Should I start holding money away? Should, you know, like those feelings, like it's, it's just exhausting. I think that the whole capitalism thing in a way kind of takes your mind off of reality, um, which is really who you are as a person. And I think a lot of people get caught up in the things sometimes, you know, versus I guess doing the deep work kind of. Um, friends, our neighbors moved into a house and they had us over for a barbecue. And it just struck me how absolutely, um, God, what is the word? Um, what's the word when you like stuff? I I forget. I, I can't think of the name people. It's, um, materialism. Thank you. Thank you. So when we went over there, it just, everything that they said, it just, they're so materialistic. And to that point, that's kind of, you know, prevents you from really finding yourself, which is kind of, I think, what Prince is talking about, too. You know, the capitalism is sort of like a distractor in a way. Um, But in order to do anything, you need money. In order to protest, you need money. In order to organize, you need money. So it is something like he talks about in that, that area, you know, so you're a Marxist. And I love that he sneered, you know, like, 
you know, it's not a good thing um, to him. And um, yeah, I, I don't, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's fascinating to me, this whole just society and culture. And you could probably do a whole podcast just on that. Those two pages. <laughs> yeah. I, I love a book or a, a, a memoir, even just like a snapshot into somebody else's thoughts, because it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to be like, this person said this and I want to wholeheartedly. Now, some people might do that, not I, but it got me thinking and I was like, Hmm, he's not wrong. He's not wrong in how he feels. Right. And so I had alluded before to the, the protesting and uh, organizing that he was doing around the pipeline with the, uh, I can't remember the, the location uh, of the uh, indigenous people that he was talking about, but there was one part on page 221 that really, uh, I, I circled it and I thought it was very like powerful quote, the front line reached a crescendo. I watched as two people pulled a woman back from the line as she screamed. This is an indigenous uh, woman. Uh, so she said, just kill me, kill me. If you're going to take my land again in the cry from her gut, I heard another truth. When they take your resources or try to obliterate your culture, they are taking your future and all of the children that your future could produce, relegating the ones to the white hot violence of the world. Her voice ripped me open, spelled out a willingness to meet an end I suddenly wasn't ready to face yet, end quote. And so I had shared a quote earlier uh, about him kind of reflecting on like, you know, capitalism and how you know it only works if most of the world is exploited or in poverty like that's the only way that it can keep being sustained and he did a really good job at illustrating what that looked like through his uh demonstrating uh and protesting experiences he's very good with the imagery and i've said this in all the episodes but i think it even as us living in the united states we don't really think you know, because, you know, the Native Americans and the reservations and things like that are really out of the way, we don't always come up or, or in contact or see the suffering that's occurring. Um, and it's from hundreds of years of colonialism, right? And I think it's, for me, unique in that, uh, you know, I'm a Black person, so I know what that struggle is like. And I think uh, Prince is feeling that too. But then he's putting himself in this different type of oppression that is, a, there are similarities, but it's also very different. And, you know, it depends on what angle you're looking at it, but Native Americans got the shittiest end of the stick. I mean, more, you know, I'm saying, like, I'm not going to come do the trauma Olympics or anything like that, but like the, if you just look at reservations today and the, the complete lack of resources, hope, funding, you know, because of the impact of colonialism um, on, you know, those generations of people, it, it seems very bleak in comparison to that of, you know, Black Americans. But again, not the Trauma Olympics, but I just, I read that and I was, I kind of jumped into some emotional like rabbit holes as I was reading this, but it was like very enlightening. Did anyone else feel uh, something about that or have any thoughts about those sorts of experiences? He did a lot of these types of 
protests. So I'm interested in what y'all's thoughts were as you read. As I hear that, I think of the word assimilation and how um, it's um, expected when you move, well, to a lot of places, um, you know, and in fact, my, my grandparents are, were immigrants into the United States from Sweden, but for them, the assimilation was necessary. And I don't know if they bought into it more because they were white, um, but they used their native Swedish as a code so their children couldn't understand them. Um, and, and a lot of their culture, culture is language. It's so intertwined, um, like the Patois in the you know, Jamaican culture or the Native American um, languages. So, you know, when I read that, tell me if you're going to take my land again. I mean, they're already, their culture and their language and their religion has already been as close to burned straight to shit as possible. I mean, you've got the, you know, they found what, 300 bodies of children in Canada that were, you know, kidnapped from their family to assimilate them from being a Native um, American to being more European. You know, you've got them here, you know, run off their lands into these small corners that are now federal lands. So the hundreds and thousands of women who go missing on the reservations, um, you know, the federal government has to get involved and local police can't. And so they, you know, they're just trying to work that out. Like what, what is going on with these women? And it's not talked about enough. Um, you know, so absolutely. Like when I, when I think of that, it's just, it just, it's, it's more than heartbreaking. It's just absolutely just soul crushing. And I can't imagine, you know, I'm so lucky to, to have what I have and, you know, um, it's to put myself in their shoes. I can't, but that, yeah, just, just kill me if you're going to take my land. That's yeah, that's heavy. So I have one more quote on that kind of sentiment before we shift gears into his time in France, uh, which was one of my favorite parts of this section. So we're jumping back now to page 178, quote, and in my margin, I just put the note how it is, right? Uh, so in that moment, I realized something new as I thought of the love I felt when I heard the vigor in Malcolm X's voice and what it meant for it to be so easy to shoot down a man like him in front of a crowd of people. No matter what you did, America could fold your story into its own. Whether you are the revolutionary that got what was coming to him or the good child told to be kind to others, to hear them out and brush it aside when a man double your age tries to get you drunk and defends the very systems that could destroy you, end quote. And that last part was, had background to it. Basically, you know, in his travels, there was this older man who, you know, they were drinking and stuff like that. And, and when you start drinking with someone, oftentimes it's like truth serum. And so people, you know, really show their true colors sometimes. And, you know, he was in this particular, uh, it's kind of like he finds himself in these situations where he's at a party or he's with people who are drinking and then they'll say something like, yeah, you're, you're too much or you're, you're thinking too much into this. I mean, the whole book is called when they tell you to be good. Right. And so even that quote that I just shared, it was like, you can do all the good things. You can be the, the, the uh, epitome of respectability politics and you can still get gunned down. And I think 
you know, I've shared several quotes about that through this book club. I've shared several instances that of that through whether it be my podcast or just this book club in general, like the books that we've read, but it, it needs to keep being said because as long as people are really like out here saying like, Oh, well that person stole something or that person wasn't following the directions or whatever. It's like, that's always the the comeback. And it's like, that's a whole person's life that is now ended over something over not speaking up loud enough or because they took a candy bar. It's like, I think these examples need to keep being shared as long as people come back with their bullshit responses that, oh, this happened because of this, uh, to which I say, fuck you very much. Can I add to you, like, I, I yes. didn't bring it up, but what that reminds me of too, because I'm, I feel like I'm older than y'all, but Rodney King, when that whole thing went down, um, I was middle of college. I think I was a junior in college. And when they were burning the city down and you know, the excuses that people were saying were, well, he's an alcoholic, he's a drunk driver, he's blah, 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 you know, which is just another <clears throat> paper tiger to deflect from the actual fact that people are just fucking racist. And the only reason that you're going to beat the shit out of him is because he's black. Like, I I just, I cannot rectify, I, I just can't. I, I, I just keep going back to all those instances and, you know, the guy in Virginia, the the serviceman who was harassed simply because of, and anyway, I, I could go on. It's, um, yeah, for, fuck respectability. I mean, and they burned that shit to the ground. They, LA, they burned that bitch to the ground. And um, at the time I worked at Sears, like part-time in the catalog call center. <laughs> and in the catalog call center, that fucker was burnt straight to the ground in Los Angeles. <laughs> So anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the the different protests that he shares, a lot of them are ones that, you know, we probably would never have heard about because, you know, he was really in there and like seeing where things were going wrong and kind of, you know, uh, but he also kind of talked about like bigger things, like as we segue into his time in France, because he went a couple of times. It wasn't just one time, but on page 194, he was talking about like a protest that like broke out in Paris. And basically he was like, well, I'm here. I might as well, you know, I, I support the cause or whatever. And literally got uh, tear gas, you know, canister went off right on him. And it was basically like, you know, he went in with the, the, the handkerchief that's covered in the thing, but basically he got hit really bad. He said it felt like hot sauce, like being poured into his eyes. And it's like, someone was there, they had like a, whatever chemical to kind of like provide some relief. And it was like, they doused it on him and then threw him out of the way and kept going to the next person who needed help. It wasn't, it's not like, you know, everyone is like, you know, consoling each other. And like, it's like, sheer chaos and i think i thought it was interesting how he's a traumatized individual he's on the he's in a, a situation like this where it's supposed to of course be your right to protest and things like that but then it turns traumatic and then you're then it almost like shows like this is why this needs to happen this is why this is a problem because even when you're trying to make something change you get treated like society treats you and it's like the cycle right yet we don't learn i guess because it keeps happening it's um it, it's kind of cyclical um, original any thoughts? 
Say that again. The rich don't want it to change. If it changes, they may not have as much money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some privileges would have to be given up for everyone to be able to live, you know. I I I, I we might even make that kind of like a, a reference point to go back to, but it's like capitalism can't work if there's not a group of people somewhere that is being shat on. Like someone has to be exploited. And I mean the whole premise of American capitalism was slavery. So I mean truly built on like slave uh, capitalism is literally built on the backs of oppressing people, you know? Um, one quick note, I'm not going to read the entire section, but it, it, for those listening along or in their book, uh, page 198 to 190, really page 198 to 200. Uh, it was a smaller kind of organization like protest that he was doing. I think, uh, Bill Clinton was doing some sort of speech on behalf of, Hillary Clinton running for president or something like that. And, you know, there was some hypocrisy there on like, you know, things that, you know, had occurred when she was first lady and stuff like that. And I wrote in the margin of this is like, he was trying to organize, he was trying to protest, but his so-called white allies and people who were supposed to have his back didn't have his back. So like he stood up and he said what he needed to say to interrupt the speech and stuff like that. And there were supposed to be other of his friends and people in other parts of this like speaking arena or whatever, who were supposed to stand up and like disrupt the speech. And then they were kind of just like lax about it. So he felt stupid because he's like, well, I did my part. I put myself out there. I try to enact change and um, disrupt something here. But then the other people who were supposed to kind of carry that on, on in other areas of this bigger setting didn't do their part. And they were very nonchalant about it. It was like, yeah, people weren't really, you know, whatever. And it, there's, I felt as I was reading it, I felt his disappointment and he, he had some reflections on it. He's like, well, how could I expect these people to really give a fuck when they're not really like, and it kind of goes with what you just said, Becky, like so the people, you know, these, the, the white people he was kind of relying on to like stand up and do something. What's really their incentive. And so of course they didn't go at it with the same vigor and the intensity that he did. But I just thought that was interesting because he, he learns throughout this memoir. Like you can see, not everybody was for him or people who were an ally at one point could become, you know, sometimes it was very like temporary situations. Like the guy we talked about last time, Colt, who was somebody that he was able to confide uh, about a sexual assault experience to ended up being a rapist, you know? Um, And so it's like, he's, you know, and I think it's very characteristic of who Prince is as being a young person. Like I'm 30 so he must be like, what, 28, 29, but like, he's talking about his 20s, right? The 20s for everybody is like, making relationships, losing relationships, people are here, people are gone, you're moving all over the place. It's very transitional time. So I would say with his story, like seeing how he experienced all that stuff and the impacts that it made, even if relationships were temporary, it was I think it's very fitting for the age that he is. So, well, and I think too, if we go back to his mother, his mother never really 
provided him emotional stability in the way that he needed that and that support. So he didn't really know a lot about what that means. And so I think it was probably a little bit easier for him as he's discovering himself to put himself in those um, difficult positions or unsafe, as we might call them, going to bars a lot, you know, being at risk for being drugged and, and assaulted and being in strange countries. He didn't know the language. You know, a lot of those are risks that potentially someone who is a little more grounded may not take possibly, um, you know, but you gotta, you gotta find yourself. You know, no, no jabs towards him. Just, just an observation potentially. And only because I'm reading a couple other memoirs at the same time. But um, Jennifer, uh, I want to say Lewis, but I feel like that's not right. She, um, she talks about how in the earlier part of her career, she's watching all of her gay friends in Broadway die because of AIDS. But that's part of the reason because they take such risky behaviors. And don't protect themselves because that's part of the culture, especially all over and different clubs and stuff that they go to. They just assume that, hey, nothing's going to happen to me. I'm invincible. I'm going to drink. I'm going to sleep with these random people. We're going to be in open relationships and I don't have to worry about it. Um, and then once you look up and you realize some of these people, it starts to catch up with them. And then they want to start having this message. Hey, be careful. Don't do what I did. But We've seen this for so long, so it's kind of troubling that the young people still take all these unnecessary risks. It's Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls by TLC. Yeah, <laughs> I love that song. I love that song, too. And it made history as the first ever, I think, R&B or any like major like charting song to ever directly address the HIV AIDS epidemic. And that music video too was very powerful. It was very straight to the point. Also, side note, TLC was so cool in the 90s and that like left eye would like literally part of her costume would be just having a condom over her sunglasses, you know? Um, they were like really, I thought it was like really cool how they did that, but. Hey y'all. I'm interrupting this episode to let you know how you can support my podcast, writing, and other creative projects. Head over to the show notes of this episode where you can consider buying me a coffee once or monthly, gift me a book from my wish list, or just leave a nice review to help others find this podcast. I know your time and money is valuable, so thank you in advance for your support. And now, let's get back to the show. Let's shift gears into a little bit more of a happier time because, you know, while memoirs are not always pretty and happy all the time, because quite frankly, if it was just somebody talking about how great their life was, it was, it would be kind of boring. So we we kind of need that the the dynamic ups and downs of things. But he on page 243 is reflecting on his time in France. So uh, his relationship with I believe his name was Enzo which is a guy he met in France. It was kind of like a open relationship. It was kind of like when I'm in France, we'll spend time together, you know, but then it became more, I feel like out of this whole memoir, that was the most significant like love story that he had. And so I just want to share one thing that is, as he's kind of reflecting on his time in France. So quote, uh, I had stumbled upon another home away from home, another place to rest my head. The dream in the back seat before Standing Rock, which was covered earlier, um, 
the the paralyzing silence around my father's murder, the ice scraper held high by my mother, the dull thud of my brother's face as the scraper struck his coat, and the theater of being a black body abroad. All of it was very far away. I wasn't living out this experience for Baldwin anymore. I had stolen something from this iteration of freedom. Baldwin had crafted a blueprint and now I was crafting my own, end quote. So for context of that quote, so he's talking about James Baldwin, who did uh, basically leave the United States and lived out the rest of his life in France. Um, And so Prince would read his writings and he kind of found uh, a lot of things to resonate with as an activist, as somebody who um, was trying to figure out how to exist as a Black queer uh, person in this world, right? Um, so he was very inspired by that. And so his initial, uh, I guess, pilgrimages to France and stuff like that was because he wanted to see what had enticed uh, James Baldwin to go. But then in this quote that I just shared, he's kind of like, okay, it started like that. I was curious about this, but he's finally found like his own home away from home, especially to find home as somebody who's so transient. I thought that was a beautiful moment. Uh, what were y'all's thoughts on that? I kind of like that his aunt came to visit him and there was not like a bunch of tension. There was not like, uh, oh, you're going to hell like his mom or somebody might tell him. I think his aunt was legitimately happy for him. And I think that put him at ease to be able to open himself up to the people that were around him. And that literally happens on the next page. But aunt comes through also with, a bag of trauma as well so like she wasn't like there to do that however she basically that on on that trip when she comes to visit him they're having wine and stuff like that and she basically drops the bomb of like hey here's what's happened to your father which again we still have a huge spoiler coming up so i'm gonna read this one just so that you have the context because there are some people in this book club who haven't quite caught up to the end to the spoiler that's going to happen and i just like playing with y'all so here we go page 244 quote after three glasses of wine and a long conversation she stares at me and speaks there's a lot you don't know about your father's death she sighs then continues honestly the truth might make you hate a lot of people i try to study her face but it is already shaded. We are already walking back to her hotel room. I remember to breathe in between steps, not to let the storm in my stomach reach my shielded expression. An hour later, my aunt is sleeping in her bed. I am holding myself so tightly that it feels like I may crush my own body. It is the only way to cry as violently as I am while staying almost completely silent. There is snot. My skin glistens like a seal, and I think my head may explode. The waves are crashing down. I am diving into Jamaica, all those questions about my father and the fact that all the silences lead back to the very beginning. My mother's gaze moves through me darkly and toward a memory of her saying, you laugh just like him sometimes, you know? The underlying tightness in her tone translates to, you feel joy just like he did, and for that, maybe you can't be forgiven, end quote. So read the rest of this book, and I know the the spoiler that I'm going to deliver to you here shortly. But having come back to this in like recollecting it for this podcast, I'm wondering if this is when Prince gets the full story of the thing that I'm about to share with y'all later. 
because at first I'm thinking, oh, I, if, if I'm Nita, can you let me know, is this Aunt Vic that comes to France? I feel like it, it probably was. And, and for those who have been listening, listening along, Aunt Vic was also the one who was there in the shady like parking lot situation when basically mom confronts Prince about being gay and gives him, you know, 20 questions and the whole, you know, listen to episode two and one for that bullshit. But I'm going to tease y'all a little bit longer because on page 247, there's a great uh, quote that basically brings back to the title of the book. And I always love when a book has a title and I'm like, why is it named this? Because Prince doesn't give us a specific, like, this is why I named this book this. He gives little subtle notes to it throughout the book, but this was like the most like explicit. So I I wanted to share that with y'all. Quote, when they tell you to be good, to be well-mannered and to follow the rules because this is how America will let you live. They do not tell you that even with your college degree, America will place the barrel of its gun in your tooth torn mouth, break your back in its car and feed you to the pigs. We do not survive what we don't even begin to confront. Silences can kill us when we give them too much power. I do not want to be afraid of my father because I didn't want to be frozen by the unknown, especially when it lunges out at me from the universe, trying to wrap itself around me and make me part of it, end quote. I want y'all to reflect on that because that was a pretty defining moment of this book. That, uh, the next, the page you're on, like the later paragraphs on that is also very, very interesting. Um, I really enjoy reading that part and then it makes the last part that we're going to find out later even more interesting. So I'm going to give two somewhat related but unrelated quotes and then i'm going to drop the bomb on y'all so page 263 uh the note in my margin says this is dark but it resonates that's Um, where i'm like i'm quickly skimming ahead that's where i am (laughs) (laughs) okay um we're 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 getting very very close becky uh so quote black adults cannot be innocent in a world always trying to kill them black children cannot either And if they attempt to live beyond the boundaries of the illusion, that does does not mean that the violence will not reach them. The violence could kill them before they even register it. The violence sometimes throws a flash grenade into the home. And as the grandmother tries to beat away the flames, the police will shoot the black child. Black children cannot be innocent because innocence means death. Which means that Black childhood, when our minds are more malleable to the other side, is and can be a walk with death, end quote. So like I said, that's dark, but it resonates. And then I got one more about fatherlessness before we drop the bomb, okay? We're almost there, y'all. Page 273. This one resonated with me because I have a deadbeat father but also he talks about those who don't have fathers as in people whose fathers are dead and this quote that i'm about to share probably will resonate with a lot of people in a lot of different blocks so quote i was never jarred by having a deadbeat biological father or to be more accurate i never felt unique america snatches black fathers out of our homes throws them into jail or hangs them from trees What America considers beautiful is fed by Black pain. 
the commonality of it gave me something to bond about with the other boys growing up when we got drunk in their garages, smoked dime bags, and argued with tough love, end quote. Any thoughts on that with how it is with fatherlessness, especially in the Black community? I mean, as an educator, I've, you know, seen it a lot and it's devastating. No, it's it's devastating. And it was because of America. Well, a lot of it, like the war on drugs and all that bullshit. It was a war on crack, which was a poor man's cocaine and all that crap, you know, and whatever it's. I was just going to say my uh, my dad is a deadbeat as well, but he didn't have any excuse to be. I mean, his dad was present for him. He's just a shitty person. And, and like sometimes you just have to look at it that way. I mean, he missed out. Uh, I turned out to be a pretty decent person. So I think now he's going through that phase where he's trying to reach out and have this relationship. And I'm like, bro, you're like 37 years too late. It's too late now. I don't need you for anything. So I feel like, do you need a kidney or something? Is this why you're trying to get close to me? Because, sorry, it's not going to happen. So, And I laugh about the kidney thing, too, because if that motherfucker ever tried to ask me for a kidney or something, my petty ass would just send a link to the nearest dialysis center um, <laughs> and then block them. You know what? Here's a funny funny little side note before we get there because i'm i'm just teasing y'all at this point it's kind of fun for me because for those listening to this podcast there's uh two to three uh, of the people participating who haven't quite made it to the end uh with the with the the big bomb that's about to go off but um so i like i said i'm i'm gonna be writing my own memoir and i've been like in the brainstorming like uh conceptualizing phase of like what sections of my life I'm going to talk about and may- maybe what I'll call certain chapters and stuff like that. And I kind of chuckled to myself as I was thinking about this, but there's going to be a chapter or a section about like mothers or mother figures, because oftentimes, you know, people in single parent uh, upbringings, they have multiple like mother figures or the grandmother might step in or something like that. So there's going to be that uh, in my book. Uh, there's also going to be someone who I considered like a, a second mother, you know, and then I thought about, well, usually in memoirs, they talk about like the mother and then they talk like a, a section about like the father or whatever. So the chapter about mothers is going to be called mothers or mother figures. Like, but then the chapter about my father is just going to be called motherfucker because there's, you know, it's going to be a deadbeat story. Right. Um, But I, you know, in my own little like rough draft, like conceptualizing of whatever my memoir will end up being. I just thought that was so funny. I was like, okay, there's going to be a section about mothers and then we'll have a chapter about the motherfucker. It may be more funny to me than, anybody else but i thought that that was pretty funny so anyway without further ado friends listeners podcast followers book club members those on the internet his dad didn't die his dad was alive the whole fucking time his mother lied his biological father did not die and Prince actually meets up with him. Nita, I want you to take it away. So there are several parts leading up to this that I guess he was throwing little hints that, hey, something is coming. 
but uh, I didn't see this one coming. So he literally takes a chance and go meets his dad in this diner. And I'm thinking he's expecting like, you know, this might be great. I don't know what to expect. Maybe he's going to say he's proud of me. His dad literally says to him at one point, I can't say I'm proud of you because I don't know you. Damn. So where is his, I have so many questions. Where was his dad this whole time? It's a little unclear. Okay. We we don't get full context, but I will say, uh, I'm going to share a couple of sections to give y'all some, some context. But we start the story with intro, being introduced to his mom, being introduced to how she has weaponized trauma in this narrative that your father was basically shot in his back on the side of a road, uh, jumping from a car sort of situation. And all the way up until the end, basically uh, circa page 278, mere 20 pages before the end of this whole thing, we find find out that his dad wasn't dead. And I'm going to share a couple of things. And quite frankly, like Nita said, the interaction with this father, he's a punk ass bitch. Um, in my clinical opinion. So here we go. And it is fragments, but I'm going to try to to paint this picture. So his father is saying, the world does not play nice. And Prince responds, I'm not talking about the world playing nice, I snapped. I'm talking about the fact that you dated a woman, you fucked her, she had a kid, and you left. You left her, and you left me. I shoot up from my seat, throw $20 on the table, In no time, I find myself outside across the street. I'm going to stop there. This motherfucker, as he's finishing his sunny side up eggs with wheat toast, and I remember that very specifically because it's a very incredibly tense moment of the story, fixes his mouth after not seeing your child that you created for all these years, don't know anything about him, has the nerve to say, hey, I can't afford to pay for this meal, by the way. You're going to have to pay for this. So that's what just happened. He He's like, really, this is what you're meeting me with after all this time, after I've come here and this is, this is what, this is what we're dealing with. So I had to pause there to give you that context because that's missing from this section here. But anyway, continuing, he's, so he stormed out of the restaurant. I am sweating. My throat feels like it is closing up. It's getting hard to breathe. I even look forward. I'm so fucking stupid. I'm so fucking stupid. I bury my face in my hands and feel the well inside of me overflowing. I I know that if I cry now, I may never stop crying. I realize I've arrived, arrived at the precipice and peered too far over the edge. So I think of a good moment. I'm going to stop the quote there because then he goes, I wouldn't say it's a tangent because it's his stream of consciousness and that's his style. But he goes into this whole thing about his uh, childhood friend who was uh, killed. Uh, However, I'm going to skip ahead to page 286 to kind of give you a little bit more about this, the situation with the dad. And basically this is the end of the interaction with his dad after all this time at this diner. So quote here, he says, as he takes my hand and puts a worn, worn journal in it, even with the book passed on to me, He holds my hand. I know who I am, and I know that maybe I wasn't meant to be your father. And I cannot speak for whether or not I'm proud of you because I don't know you. But there is one thing that I can tell you from the good part of me. What is that? I asked. If God is in you, God is in me too. He pulls me in fast for 
an ephemeral moment, I'm sure that the hug will last forever. His arms are strong around me. I close my eyes and breathe in his scent, a mixture of dirt and sweat and medium grade cologne. Then he is gone, walking away until I realize the blur in my vision that swallowed him up was just my quiet crying, end quote. Uh, my first reaction, and then I'm going to let the rest of y'all speak. <laughs> I have a problem with the pithy bringing God into something. The fact that his little, like, this is what makes dad feel better after being a just punk ass individual is if God is in you, God is in me too. Basically, if if there's good in you, there's good in me too. There's, you know, it's just a very like flowery, pithy thing. And it pissed me the fuck off. I'm going to leave it there and let y'all talk. He seems to make it all about him. The dad. He's just, you know, and, and you get why the mother um, kept him away from him. But at the same time, it's like he's opened up both closets and they're full of shit. Both of them. So it's kind of like the world that you'd created in your mind while looking through the photographs and thinking of what could have been, you realize and are literally smacked in the face with what should have been <clears throat> because he never was dead and he was alive this whole time. And then he looks at how good you've turned out and somehow tries to link yourself together with the God thing. Yeah. Fuck him. Yeah. He's no. That 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 kind of turned my stomach. Like, but of course he did. Of course he did. The levels to what mom had to do to keep him from finding out that his dad was really alive is crazy to me. I mean, we hear stories all the time about bitter baby mamas and all this other thing. But man, how could you let this young man go into his twenties, knowing his father is still alive, still in the same country he's in? And you just completely let him believe his dad is dead. Like, I can't imagine the betrayal he feels on both sides from both his mom and his dad. Like, who was supposed to protect this kid? And neither one of them did it. It's ridiculous. It is. It, it, it takes fuckery to a whole new level. And I mean, this woman, literally his mother, I mean, it speaks to how, I guess, well, resilient he is, but also how doggedly, you know, he, he, he wants to know the facts regardless of what they are. And then I think when he does find them, it's, it's almost, you know, it's crushing to him because he, again, like has lived that lie, but yeah, the lengths that that woman went to, I mean, God, I don't, I don't know who's worse, you know, the mom or the dad, like, Ugh. some people just don't deserve to be parents bottom line and it just infuriates me because there's a lot of people out here that would be like fantastic parents and would just love their children for who they are and like would give them an excellent life and then you have people like this it's just like I just don't get it. Like that, I've always struggled with that concept. And when you find out stuff about this, it's just kind of like, what the fuck? 
I said I was going to leave it at that, but y'all know I like to keep talking. It's my podcast. I can do that, right? <laughs> That's allowed. Um, let's go back uh, to exhibit uh, five, uh, where he said, <laughs> um, maybe I wasn't meant to be your father. My boy, <laughs> there's these things called condoms. There's these things called don't have sex if you don't want to make a baby. Okay. That right there, I think, was a little just as equally upsetting as the if God is in you, he's in me too kind of thing. And I, I know Nita had mentioned this of basically, you know, she's grown, she's got her career and all this other stuff. And then the father's trying to like circle back and trying to be like, hey, how are you? Like, you know way, way, way too late, right? I, it'll be in my book when, when it comes out uh, soon, whenever that is. But yeah, I've definitely been approached at various points in my life as I'm doing the things I'm supposed to do, despite not having a father involved. And depending on where you caught me at what part of my development, this is why there will be a whole chapter in the book called Motherfucker. Because at different points in my development, you know, whether I be the teenager working at Applebee's and the man comes in with one of his many people he's fucking with, right? And then tries, you know, I'm the host, right? So, at, and I'm supposed to give people menus and be hospitable and stuff like that. And he tried to use that as, oh, this is my son. I'm like, nigga, I ain't seen you in like 10 years. I don't know you. I don't know who this chick is, but you ain't getting me acting and lying up in here. So I said, you want to sit at the bar? You want to sit at a table? You want to booth what you want? And I threw the menus down and I proceeded. (laughs) I proceeded to do uh, what I had to do for my job, right? Or later on in life, after Maya Jane was born, and I was, again, this is going to be in the book. I'm not going to give it all away, but... Uh, I crossed paths with him again, and this was an inter- a different time in my life. Here I am, a, a college graduate. I have a master's degree. I built my own business. I'm married. I have my 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 daughter had just been born. Uh, she's probably like maybe not even a year old at this point when I crossed paths again. And the, the problem is, is that I'm very findable on the internet because I have business, right? And so I crossed paths again and it was very much like, oh, I'm so proud of you and everything that you've accomplished and you know, all of this. And I'm like, literally shut the fuck up. Like why are why am I even wasting my time? You know? So the the response is different, but I think when once I had a child and the interaction with him once he knew that I was a parent too if I wasn't repulsed by being in his presence for that long, I probably would have said, yeah, the way that I parent my child is doing the damn opposite that you did. And it's going great so far. So fuck you very much, you know? Um, but anyway, follow me because there will be a memoir from John Zell Anderson uh, because I got stories to tell. But I think it's important to, even in this context with Prince's stories, to be able to resonate like the deadbeats be deadbeaten. And they be trifling as fuck. And their excuses are so, like, ignorant. And I didn't... I would like... And, and I'm I, this, is, this is getting back to the book. I would like a sit-down with the mother. I would like to interrogate her. And I would really... 
I want some sort of resolution. I want an epilogue. I want a... What did you do to your mother when you found this out? Is mom still alive? Is she okay? Because I just feel like there are unanswered questions. Because do you speak to your mother after something like this? It's just so very open-ended. And we've come to this conclusion many times with memoirs of, like, we don't really know what happened. But I will, I want to bring it back. This is going to be one episode. So I thought it might be two, but there's no way to slice this in half. It's like the person's going to listen to it and be like, what the fuck? What you mean? I got to wait until next week. I can't do that to y'all. You know, when your shows do that to you and then it's like, wait, you you did all this to me. You put me through all this trauma. And then it's like, wait until the finale episode, but we're going to skip a week so that you can marinate on this. You know how they do it to you. I won't do that to you. Lovely listeners of the perfectly imperfect podcast, because I care about you deeply. However, um, I do want to leave you. I want to put you back together, right? Um, we've been on this trauma roller coaster together. So I have two more little lighter things that I want to share. Page 282, there is a great definition of love. And it's complex. It's concise. It is deep. It rocked me to my core. It transcended a lot of different relationships that I've been in, had seen, experienced. And I thought it was very important to share that. So here we go. Quote, that's when I realized it, that sometimes love means being a vessel for somebody else's pain. Not because love should mean taking on someone else's pain, but rather that love makes certain kinds of pain more bearable and teaches us more than the love the violence, and the story that birthed us. Love can make us people with wings, end quote. I feel like my reading of it didn't do it justice, but I read it over and over and over and over and over again, and it was very healing. Any thoughts on that? I think for me, this kind of embodies my relationship with my husband a lot because, you know, those of you who've heard me talk, I didn't have deadbeat parents by definition. But if you were to categorize deadbeat emotionally, absolutely. (laughs) Um, But I remember asking my husband why he loved me. Like, what was it about me that he loved? And when he said everything, my, you know, my sassiness, my happiness, my pain, all the crap that I went through, when I was growing up, like everything, like it just floored me. Like I, cause I had never experienced a comment like that, much less someone who just loves me for being me. And so that kind of um, reminds me of that, that, um, you know, it, it's kind of like the new Becky, so, so to speak, after that point, it's like, you know, cut section two of my life. Um, you know, and absolutely, I totally, for me, that's how, what that, I think that means it, you know, helps you shoulder a burden, helps you figure out what is hurting you and helps you try to fix it. Um, I don't know. It's, that is, that's a very moving, very powerful passage. So this is the only, the quote, but I know we didn't really talk about the uncle, and the journal with the uncle and all this other stuff. 
So part of me going back to the conversation, I'm sorry to go back negative with the dad or whatever, but he had all these letters he wrote to his dad as a little boy, like going through all this stuff. So he's like, even as even if you don't know, you were able to help me because when I was having a hard time, I thought I couldn't do it. I would write to you and it made me feel better. So I'm very curious as to the journal that his dad handed him as to what was in there. Was this the same as the uncle's journal or was it his dad's own words? And did he get anything from this journal or book that the dad slid him? Uh, It would be great to follow up with him and see if he could fill in the little questions or maybe he's going to write another book and we'll just have to read from there. But I think it's amazing what you and your husband were able to do, Becky. I know sometimes our parents don't always prepare us for being able to find the good things in life either. And I'll say too, and Nita, please chime in if I'm mistaken, but at the end of this book, there was passages from the uncle's journal. The thing I didn't like about it is that it came before we knew why that was important uh, in the series of the book. So just a small critique, I think it would have been better if those passages came after um, the connection is made with how he saw his father and the journal was passed to him because that would have made it make more sense. Because when I was reading it, I was like, why is this here? I didn't even know who the, the journal entrance entries were from. Um, so it's like a small little editing critique. It's not the end of the world. But that did you feel that way, Anita, when you when you saw that or did am I is that just my interpretation? Um, it, it felt a little awkward only because you're like trying to make all of this make sense in like a chronological timeline of where, where does this fit in? But I can definitely see him trying to parallel the lives of his dad and his uncle as far as the things they did, how it affected their kids and the women who loved them and all of this good stuff. And I it's mean, probably it's probably not an easy thing to do. It is not. I can imagine. Okay. So we've come to the end of the May Mental Health Book Club. And so I never usually read acknowledgments sections of a book because I'm like, oh, blah, you're thanking your editor or your mom or your, I don't think he thanked his mom. And if he did, I would be shocked. I don't think he did. He definitely didn't literally fuck her, fuck his father, like all of them die slowly. In the acknowledgement section, there was one little part that really I found encouraging. Uh, so I talked about how I discovered this author, uh, Prince Shakur, through uh, the website Medium, which is where I post some of my writing at. And then through reading some of his work on there, I found that he had written a memoir. And then I was, you know, I was like, oh, I have this mental health book club. I'm totally going to throw this book on there. And, you know, we're going to do this. And so it was interesting because I've been going through this book and probably for years, you know, I've been thinking, oh, someday I'm going to write a memoir. And I have always kind of battled in my head. It's like a tug of war. It's like, well, you're too young. You can't, you know, you can't be 30 years old or 20 something years old, you know, and write a memoir. Like, who do you think you are? And then our first introduction in this mental health book club was Jeanette McCurdy's book, uh, I'm Glad My Mom Died, right? And she's around my age, maybe a little bit older. I can't, I can't remember. But she's a young person and she wrote this very powerful memoir, but it was open-ended, right? It's like, well, we know it's not the end of her story. She's just started living, you know? But she wrote this thing and it was very therapeutic to her. So that was like one 
you know, checkbox for me. It was like, okay, this could be done. And I've been thinking, you know, we're now, you know, what is this? We did December, January, February, March, April, May. So this is six months into this mental health book club year. And now we're on book six. And the, literally, I was this was such a powerful, like dynamic, unique way of writing a memoir that I've not really seen before. And so I was like, let me read the acknowledgments. I have the time, you know? And so I read the acknowledgments and on page 291, it's one sentence. And it meant a lot to me as somebody, because literally a couple days ago, I announced that I was going to start writing my memoir and I put it out into the world and now the ball is rolling, right? And so he says in his acknowledgments, quote, so many people believe that young Black people don't have stories to tell, but this book proves that we do, end quote. And so I saw that and the only thing I can say is that because when I said I was going to write a memoir and I tweeted about it, I posted on Instagram about it, I sent it out to my newsletter, I launched my like uh, membership thing where people can support me monthly and stuff like that. I did all of that stuff and the whole time I'm like, yeah, I'm excited about this, but then like I live with anxiety. So it's like, I'll be excited for five minutes and then I'm fucking terrified the next five minutes. Like, it's like, it's, uh, and people describe this about like writing a book or doing anything of a creative nature is that like, it's not just like, yeah, I'm so excited. I'm going to do this. It's like, no, you're literally, your emotions are being like ripped out of you, repurposed, put back together. You think you're okay. And then you're torn apart and tossed across the room. It's like a whole freaking like whirlwind, right? And so to have gotten to the end of his story, which has been a heavy read, it has not been an easy read, easy to read, but it's not been easy to, you know, take on this vicarious trauma. But that's why I'm grateful that we have this like safe place in the book club to kind of, you know, process and go through these things. But to hear that about like, you know, people think that black, young, young, specifically young black people don't have stories to tell. And he said, my book is proof that that's false. Like it's, it's proof that this, we do have stories to tell. And I thought that that was just very affirming. And I needed to see that because while I go on this up and down roller coaster of like, oh, I'm going to write a book. And then it's like, is anyone going to read it? Is this going to be a success? Is it going to flop? Like, do I even know what I'm talking about? Do I have anything relevant to say? Like, you go through the insecurities, but I saw that and I was like, well, I just read an entire book of somebody who lays his insecurities and his traumas and his stories and his uh, experiences out. And he did that. And so if he can do it, I can do it. So I just wanted to end on that. I saw that in... The, the quote about love that I just shared hit me like a ton of bricks because it meant so many things on so many different levels and so many, it, 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 it transcended a lot of different areas of my life. But that last part about like, we have stories to tell that it felt like almost like I got a big hug and it was like, do this, John, so you're going to be okay. This is the journey that you need to be on. So it felt very affirming. So that's all I got for you folks. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you're following along, we will be doing for the month of June, we're going to be going over Greta Thunberg's book, which is a book of essays. It's called The Climate Book. And you may be thinking, well, what does climate change have to do with mental health? Well, 
Uh, there's this thing called eco-anxiety and our planet is on fire and it's fucking terrifying. Therefore, it produces anxiety and there's a lot to talk about when it comes to climate change. Also, it's something that's a passion of mine to, not a passion, it's something that I'm very interested in slash terrified um, more so because I have a child and the second that I had a child, I was like, goddamn, <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, is my child going to make it to retirement age because this ain't looking good, right? So needless to say, that discussion is going to be very interesting because it's not necessarily a memoir. It's not necessarily a book specifically about mental health, but it is an important topic that needs to be discussed. And we're going to do it here on the Mental Health Book Club. So definitely stay tuned uh, for next month on those discussions. But until next time, thank you for listening and take care.